See, in the sequel, Gonna Fly Now is gonna hoverboard now. Because it's new. In honor of Creed, what Sylvester Stallone movie should they reboot next? And why? Um, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm pretty sure Betty, Knight, Betty White is already in negotiations for a remake of Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. So let's just do that. I'm Joanna Robinson, and I'd like to see a Tango and Cash with the daughters of Tango and Cash involved this time around. Ooh. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Sylvester Stallone's first movie, The Party at Kitty and Studs, because there's not enough softcore pornography in the world. <laughs> and after Fifty Shades, I mean, it's the perfect time. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm pretty sure there is more than enough softcore pornography in the world. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to go with Cliffhanger, because if Everest taught us anything, it's that the world would rush to the movies to see a remake of Cliffhanger. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 97 for Tuesday, November 24th, 2015. It's the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, and as you might have heard, we swapped Dave for a Joanna this week. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Katie. Um, please, listeners, don't write in about how happy you are to have Joanna. It might make Dave feel bad, but we're all happy to have Joanna anyway. <laughs> um, but we promise Dave is not gone for good, just for a minute. Um, but even more excited, maybe even more excitingly, I don't know. Uh, we had a revelation this week about the United Kingdom as a country across the sea, uh, where apparently there are some fighting in the war room listeners and, uh, Dave, would you like to, sh- or David, hello, would you like to share where the story goes from here? Uh, I'm not sure if I, I, I'm really only qualified to read the reviews. If you want to <laughs> get us to that point, that'd ba- be great. Well, basically we learned that there's a whole page of iTunes reviews from UK iTunes that we had no idea existed. And a very nice listener screenshotted it, sent it to Joanna because she was the easiest person to find on the internet, I guess. And, uh, Joanna kindly sent it our way. So now we're going to share a, uh, a UK review that had been previously <laughs> invisible to us. How did us. we not know this was a thing? Amerocentrism is like, I don't think I knew that here. there would be separate iTunes. It never occurred to me that there would be a whole separate iTunes page in a different country. I want to know if there are German fighting in the war. I know, me yeah, too. We can, we can probably look at all the other countries. We only have eight uh, reviews in How total. How do you say Katie is the glue in <laughs> languages? Oh, I took German. I really should know that. Well, for the Damn UK eight. listeners, it's pretty easy. Uh, we, I was instructed by Katie to read this one review in particular by Andy Loves Films, who said... <laughs> in the most British subject line for a review imaginable, fabby doodles. That is lovely. But they say, <laughs> used to be my eighth favorite movie podcast, but now it's number one. Yay! <laughs> Being in the top ten was an honor. This many people all talking over each other really shouldn't work, but I find this podcast unmissable. (laughs) They're all really interesting, but to be honest, I still haven't put a name to a voice yet. I don't suppose it really matters. A++. That is a criticism, or not a a negative criticism necessarily, but a comment that we have not heard before. Especially because we intro every podcast saying our names. Hey, let's not not insult Andy. I'm Katie. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I really like that there's one girl, and they're like, eh. Who cares? Doesn't matter. You know what? We're, we're the number one favorite podcast. I can't complain. Um, and I'll read one, one more, just because we owe our UK listeners to that, by Michael G. Crowder. It says, finally a convert. 
I have been slowly sucked into fighting in the war room, and I'm happy to report the conversation process is in now complete. The conversion process, right? It is now his now, eighth favorite movie podcast. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Crowder wrote conversation process, but I do believe he intended. Okay, now no, I sound like a jerk. Okay. I was introduced to be a cast of kings, leading the storm of spoilers, and then finally leading here. Deciding I already had enough film podcasts, I resisted and only listened to Thought Bubble at first. But Patches and Dave led a Republic City Dispatch pincer movement, and finally I was, happily, trapped. We really Which dragged him now this podcast. 65% better. Thanks, book. kids. This is like uh, the frog in the boiling water, where it just incrementally goes up and up until you can't get out. Out of Dave. Out of Matt. <laughs> I know, slowly but surely, it's inescapable. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, uh, listeners in the UK. And if you are in another country and you're seeing like reviews in Japanese or German or something, please let us know. This is totally fascinating. And we apologize for our American centrism that we uh, had no idea this was happening. Do you want to... You going to sing right now? Do you want me to sing for you? Come on. Okay. There it is. <laughs> All right, come on. Okay. Only bit of goodie. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet, walk on by. All right. So for a segment one tonight, or a tidbit, as we like to call it around these parts, we're going to be talking about a little movie that anyone who uh, follows me on Twitter or has passed by me on the street or has ridden in a subway car with me uh, may have overheard my enthusiasm for, which is called Carol by Todd Haynes. What's that? Uh, Carol? Carol, okay. Carol, indeed. Right, I, I, uh, I believe it's, it's Carl. Carl, it's, it said Carol. That's how. But you're supposed this to is say. not the segment where we just go nuts about Carol. Hopefully, we certainly I. We will uh, get there. We will get there. We'll have a proper review of it. The rollout plan for that movie, for those of you who are listening to this who don't live in New York or L.A. or in the United States, but I can only speak to America um, on this subject at least, is very slow. And it will hopefully in a way that should sustain momentum and Although interest in had it for a while. But tweeting at us, being like, "Where is the Carol review? Where is it?" <laughs> yeah. Um, but the uh, the movie's opening in New York and LA now. But I don't believe it's opening into more major markets until the middle of December, and then the rollout's going to continue into the early January. So uh, check your local listings. Isn't right. Go to the Weinstein Company's website or something and. Figure out when it's opening in your city. Anyway, what we are going to be talking about in this tidbit is something that you won't need to have seen Carol necessarily to uh, listen to. It certainly won't spoil anything from the movie. It's just just Kate Blanchett. Uh, now, my impression of Kate Blanchett is that she and I've understood this to be just sort of a self-evident truth for a long time that she is sort of the best working actress alive, at least in English-speaking cinema, um, and that even if you don't necessarily personally see things that way, that there, she's become sort of the gold standard. Uh, one way or another, people tend to see her as the cream of the crop. She has an unparalleled pedigree, uh, and I would have had you asked me who was the best actress working today, uh, I would have said her without really thinking it through. Would you have um, said that before Carol? I think I would have, yeah. I think that this is something that uh, I've just sort of believed to be true for a while. I do happen so, to think that Carol, Carol, is her, is Carol Trump's voice. Carol Trump's Meryl. Is that what you're saying? Ooh, yeah. well, nicely is, done. Um, I, I, in my mind, uh, yes, and also because Meryl Streep, uh, not to be particular, not to be too ageist about this, but has sort of been. Um, 
I don't know, coasting for a while. Um, or, or not really in her prime um, of her career, at least. Anyway, Carol is is my favorite Kate Blanchett performance, but that's not really either here nor there. Uh, in preparing to interview her for Carol, I was sort of reading over her uh, Wikipedia page, and it occurred to me that despite my opinion of her uh, as a whole, she hasn't really been in all that many great movies. Uh, you know, she... It won the Oscar for Blue Jasmine, which is a, a good movie, and uh, I think she certainly deserved the award. But in, and I'm not there. You can say what you will about it. I she's the best part of the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the Life Aquatic is a is a good movie. She's very. I mean, she's very good in everything. She's been nominated for an Oscar five times. Six yeah. times, it'll be six times. Wow, oh, you're right. Twice um, in one year. Twice in 2008. Right. right. So uh, yeah, she's no slouch, but. <laughs> you know, look over her list of movies here. It's like, you know, Galadriel, the Lord of the Rings movies I love. Um, she, I love Hot Fuzz. She's in it for one shot, and you don't even see her face. Um, yeah, like, but, the, but those eyes. Those yeah, eyes. those eyes, they say a lot. I, I have very conflicted feelings about Babel. Uh, but there are a lot of the Monuments Men's in there. There are a lot of uh, Robin Hood. Elizabeth the Golden Age. Oh, Robin, Robin Hood. Hood. Wow. Um, so I, I guess, and maybe my favorite performance of hers prior to Carol uh, other than something like Galadriel, which I, I don't think anyone else could. It's not a meaty role, but I don't think anyone else really could have done it quite that well. Uh, maybe my favorite performance of hers is in uh, Coffee and Cigarettes, the Jim Jarmusch film. She, she's in something called – one of the segments called Cousins where she sort of explores, in my, to my mind at least, explores the duality of her screen presence, the sort of uh, glamorous old Hollywood golden age veneer against sort of this real woman brusque Australianness beneath that – uh, where she plays both herself, the actress at a junket, and also her cousin, who's sort of like a Patty Smith lookalike, um, and it's hitting her up for money. Uh, it's great if you haven't seen it. But my question to the rest of you guys to take it away from here is: uh, A, if you think that if you do sort of separate from the individual movies that she's been in, see her as the sort of gold standard, uh, and B, if uh, you think when you consider her body of work, if that is deserved. I mean, I mean, the yeah. body of work thing is hard because, like, she is working in studio movies like anybody else. And there are movies like Monuments Men and uh, the Robin Hood or going back way back to Shipping News that, like, seem like a good idea on paper for someone who's coming up. Like, she does seem to have, like, weird taste in that way where she'll, like, go after the prestige on paper that doesn't necessarily pan out. Like, Truth, I think, is an example of this where, like, she's giving this really devoted performance in a movie that can't really keep up with her. Um, and I think Meryl Streep has had the same problem where, like, she has given really great performances in a lot of movies that weren't quite up for her. Like, I don't know if I'm willing to chalk it up as, like, an actress sexism problem, but I don't, I think she's far from the only actress to it, have talent kind of outmatching the. the is it when you're that good? Rather than being a sexist thing, although I'm sure you could find something there, uh, do you think it's just if you're that fucking good that you sometimes, if the material isn't, like, exceptional? It, it, you make it seem like the rest of the movie can't keep up with you more. Mm, I mean, I don't know that like you can really say that for like. I actually, I haven't even seen the monument, so I'm not going to knock on that. But but there's also isn't there a level where I have like I have seen Monuments Men. If George Clooney calls you and is like, "Hey, can you come like be the lead in my movie?" In your or, for three or, months, yeah, yeah. Or, or if Ridley Scott's like, "Hey, please be my main Marion," you know, Russell Russell's doing it. Please do that. Like, isn't there like a level where maybe you just don't say no for? politics you know probably a lot of fun to make that movie and and fun yeah 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 Yeah, well now she has four kids and so i think that uh the decisions 
um, are a little bit different for her. But I do think Joanna's point is well taken that, um, you know, when you get to that certain caliber and you are sort of the go to for these high profile, high you know, pedigree movies, um, you, those are the movies you get asked to do. And, and you tend to say yes. Yeah, but she's also we have to accept the fact that 50 percent of Cate Blanchett's amazing performances we, we never get to see because she's part of the C- Sydney Theater Company with mm-hmm. her husband and doing these, you know, Streetcar, Uncle Vanya. I saw I saw Streetcar. She did it at BAM. It was fucking oh, amazing. Right, right, right. <laughs> one, of, one of the few crossovers. But she was that doing was BAM. And she was doing Shakespeare in the 90s. And there's just so much that she's done that we'll never see. Maybe they have tapes or something that you can go back to. But yeah, she's a theater actress and a film actress, so she's splitting her time here. Um, but she definitely seems to prioritize fun, too. Like, I look at a movie like Hannah. She's mm-hmm. astounding in that. Or Cinderella, just playing these sinister characters. She's or, or so playing someone who can good be... in Cinderella. Yeah. She is. She's amazing. And, and, and they're two different villain characters, but there she's extravagant, like Mommy Dearest in Cinderella, of course. Uh, but And then in Hannah, she's rigid and she, she can kill. She's a she's a spy uh and and she's still playing i she has so much range it's never the same note twice in her movies but I, yeah i just i don't feel like you say no to steven spielberg when he's like i'm making a new indiana jones movie yeah and they're like oh all right she's great in that like i don't even care yeah. i know that i <laughs> no i i know that i have a weird affection for that movie that is not commonly shared but i don't find or at least haven't found that people who are you know, have the knives out for that movie, aim them at Kate Blanchett. Remember when you forgot that she and Shia LaBeouf had been in a movie together? It just wasn't on my mind. But I think that she can play. I mean, I think her her the parts that we that stand out in her filmography are very theatrical. Is there something that's really emotionally connected with you in one of her movies? I mean, uh, something like Blue Jasmine strikes me. It's it's a very uh, vigorous performance. Um, and maybe Carol is the closest to this. Well, yeah, Carol we'll is. There, uh, but I'm wondering if there's other. Even Carol is very heightened. It's very meticulous. Yeah, but it's about I every think... move matters and every glance matters, and it's all kind of fetishized. And for our British way. listeners. I I wrote about this very thing that Matt is talking about right now in the new issue of Little White Lies, um, where I was just writing about her uh, duality of Kate Blanchett and that she does have that theatricality. But I think uh, she, unlike a lot of other actresses who have that same skill set, uses it to channel something raw and very human. Um, and I think Carol is sort of a masterclass in how she does that and is her best performance for that reason, because it sort of uh, explores in its own way uh, and explains how she is as gifted as she is. Uh, but I do know what you mean. And I was thinking, I asked her actually about bandits, uh, mostly because that movie all the time. <laughs> it was on TV the day before I interviewed her, but it was also when I looked it up, the only like out and out comedy that she's done. Like, yes, you could call the life aquatic, a comedy, you could call coffee and cigarettes, a comedy, but you know, when you say like a broad studio comedy, Bandits is really alone in her filmography. I don't and know why I think this, but I always think Renee Russo is in Bandits, not Kate Blanchett. <laughs> she would be. Out to be. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't <laughs> um, she has like a red wig in that movie, right? Yes. Yeah. Very confusing. Very Renee uh, Russo. <laughs> but just, you know, she is playing a little bit more naturalistic in that. I think she's very good. But I also think like Babel, um, she, she can get lost in the shuffle there because there are so many things happening in that movie. But she's just playing like a modern woman who's on vacation with her husband, Brad Pitt, like I think we can all relate to. And uh, she gets shot and, you know, she has a lot of bleeding and, and 
being very grievously injured, which is a certain kind of theatricality. But I think that uh, it's less heightened than her usual stuff. And I think it's very strong. I have a weird fondness for Oscar and Lucinda. Um, I don't know why. I think by all accounts, most people don't think that's a good movie, but I quite, I quite like it. And, and it's, well, it's just, it's fun. I, I think I saw that actually before I saw Elizabeth. I mean, it came out before Elizabeth, but I think only because I really liked the book and, uh, it's fun to see that or Paradise Road and sort of see her before she really came into, uh, I think it's just before she, unlocked what she could quite do on screen and so to see her not just take like devour every scene Mm -hmm. but just sort of be there as an actress is kind of interesting i like that about her in uh uh the talented mr ripley which she has a pretty small part in and she's playing this very un-kate blanchett character where she's this kind of like flighty silly kind of dumb girl who's kind of she's kind of the fulcrum where she like makes the whole movie happen by accident um but it's because like she hadn't grown into her type yet like you're talking about joanna like she hadn't become the Kate Blanchett who like can't play a dumb blonde anymore because no one would believe it. That's that's exactly. a really good point. She can't play stupid. Uh, I almost asked her about this and thought better of it, but like she, I think that's almost beyond her range, or maybe blue, it's just an argument for Blue Jasmine being her. She's her delusional version. and sick in Blue Jasmine, but I I don't know if she's dumb. You I'm know, trying to like think a, of a truly dumb character that she would be reaching to, or right. like who who else plays dumb really well that she right. can't. I mean, like there's it's not as if they often she's build playing dumb with purpose dumb in Blue characters. Jasmine. Sally Hawkins is kind dumb. of playing dumb in Blue Jasmine, and she's oh. good at it. She's great at it though. Bobby Cannavale is nailing. Bobby Cannavale is really good at playing <laughs> dumb. <laughs> yeah. That's his. Uh, that's his wheelhouse for sure. Yeah, sure is. But it does happen with uh, with actresses like Kate Blanchett, where they like become like Meryl Streep has had the same problem to bring her up again. Like she can't play like dumb really i do think for what it's worth and it's not worth very much because this is just a simple opinion i do think that kate blanchett is better than meryl streep uh i i think that's a good way to end this <laughs> yeah i mean i it, it's just a personal thing uh yeah. she she does it for me her performances she's been in and, and something like carol again um uh, yeah it's just it's it's I this it's just an overwhelming performance and i think she's really great and it, it was finally like seeing this movie like my uh understanding of Kate Blanchett and her place in sort of the acting ecosphere finally and forever sort of aligned with uh, her actual talent. And uh, I think a lot of it had to do with seeing her in um, Streetcar Named Desire because I was just like, whoa. Uh, but yes, anyway, Carol. Oh, oh, is this a segment about Carol? Yeah. Oh, okay. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Not Kate. Carol. Uh, Carol. Carl. For our mini segment this fine evening, we are going to be talking about Carol. <laughs> We're going to be talking. What the fuck? Uh, it, it actually is inspired by Carol. We're going to talk about yeah. movies. Um, Carter, Carter Burwell scoring Carol is what set this off. But also, to take it away from Carol, uh, Alexander Desplat's annual uh, you know, period drama that he scores in sort of his vintage piano heavy score uh, the danish girl his score for suffragette is much like that movie forgettable 
but uh, his score for the Danish Girl is up there with the music that he wrote for the Imitation Game. Um, it's sort of this vintage, the Splot register. Uh, and so between Carter Burwell's score for Carol and Alexander Desplat's score for Danish Girl, I just wanted to ask our panelists here uh, to reflect on the year that was, now that we are getting towards that before time. We, and talk before about we their- get a new John Williams Star Wars score and a new Ennio Morricone score. Well, I've heard the... Yeah. I can't speak. Yeah, you can't. Uh, but, uh, hush, uh, sir. Hush. Uh, the Yes, but it, you know what the John Williams Star Wars score is going to sound like. Um, it's going to sound like... Listen, John Williams the score scores for the prequels were still pretty good. Who knows? They were. The, They're like, fine. They're very Star Wars-y. I mean. The children's chorus that like comes in in Phantom Menace is actually really good. Okay. I like Star Wars-y. Um, when they're being murdered and they're screaming and John Williams works in the score. That's not in the Phantom Menace. Oh, wait, the, young, the younglings? <laughs> anyway, what are your favorite right. scores from this year that you've actually heard? I mean, so mine is I. It's so boring agreeing with David, but mine is Carol. Uh, as soon as I got out of Carol, the first thing I did is is went home and sort of moaned on Twitter that I couldn't buy the soundtrack immediately, and then people pointed out that a lot of it was up on YouTube, and so I listened mm-hmm. to it, and it's really quite beautiful and amazing. And I'm not as good as a lot of uh, film scholars are at noticing, really noticing scores and motifs the first time I see a movie. And with Carol, it just really, really struck me. So that would be my my vote. That's going to be something I'm going to think about on a second uh, watch because I haven't thought about that score that much. But the one that I've had stuck in my head, really the only score I can think of from this year that stuck with me is one from Inside Out. I ride hard for Michael Giacchino, although Jurassic World, I can't remember a single thing about. Uh, you know, not everything is a winner. <laughs> but I, thought, I thought the score da, da, for, da, da. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like that, I don't know, that, that sounds familiar, right? I feel like that wasn't original to him. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, I thought the score for Inside Out was really lovely. As I mean, Giacchino's Pixar scores, I think, have all been slam dunks, and I really liked that one, too. All of them. Right? Hang on. Let me make sure there's nothing really yeah, go verify just I'm thinking that. of. Okay, I'm thinking about Up, mostly. Oh, he did Cars 2, which I never saw. So, okay. Vroom. Um, <laughs> David, I, it's so weird that Carter Burwell is... I mean, I know this is his big play. This is a big, big movie for him uh, in terms of maybe like awards and that sort of thing. But it didn't really strike me as much as, I guess, the rest of the world. His music. I mean, it doesn't compare to anything he's done with the Coen brothers. Oh, my God. I think it's his best score. Yeah. I, well, I would assume that you do. <laughs> um, and, and just a few other good scores from the beginning, or close to the beginning year. Ex Machina, we were talking about before the podcast, I think is a really good synthy score. And then uh, Z for Zachariah has a really good, mm. I don't know if anyone saw that movie. Yes, I saw it. It has a beautiful piano score. Really beautiful. Yeah. And um, every year I'm becoming a bigger and bigger fan of Daniel Pemberton, who scored Man from Uncle, which has just crazy tracks. Every every track is different uh, by demand, apparently, uh, from the director, of Guy Ritchie. And, uh, but it's a crazy throwback score with big, brassy elements, and oh, it's so fun. And then he did Steve Jobs, which apparently no one else is hearing, um, which is my new work soundtrack to... Uh, which is more electric, but gets big and crazy when it needs to. And I love that score. So. I, I forgot one, which was um, Joe Kramer's uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation score with the Nessun Dorma theme like, coming back mm. in, which I really liked. Yeah, yeah, that was good. But can we really give him credit it. for that? Uh, <laughs> I think it's creative to. use of existing music. It's uh, true. He, it's worked into the score really well. So that, exactly. That takes and, like the fact that Nessun Dorma turns into the Mission Impossible theme that you know is crazy and great. I loved it.
right. So for segment three this evening, we are going to be talking about Netflix's Marvel's Jessica Carol. Jones. <laughs> Carol. 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 Uh, Carol Jessica Jones. Marvel's Carol would be <laughs> Carol Danvers. Miss Marvel. Oh, yeah, yeah. You've already gone too far. Um, there will be my Jessica posters Jones. tweeted at you. Don't Why worry. must you ruin the things that David loves? <laughs> With actual references to comic books. Uh, anyway, uh, for those of you who... Uh, it, it seemed like, you know, it, this came out on Friday and it seemed like a lot of people... Over the weekend, as people are wont to do with uh, these new Netflix shows, really dove into it. And I, even though I had a seven-episode head start that they made available to the press, it seemed like I finished behind so many other people who really set aside their weekend to watch this and more power to them. Uh, but uh, just a brief primer, Jessica Jones is Marvel's second Netflix series after, uh, I was going to say Demon Lover. That's not right. Uh, Daredevil. Daredevil. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Marvel's demon lover. Yeah. That's Red Tube's uh, first original Marvel <laughs> Um And uh, yeah, unlike da- Daredevil, it's good, uh, which is which is a really nice oh, change of pace. Come on. Uh, no, Daredevil was just a raging piece of shit. I mean, I say that as someone who only got through the pilot and then was like, nope. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's why people get mad at you when you write yeah, off. That's but, a good way to judge things. Yeah. Uh, but. Come on, I it's garbage. <laughs> Daredevil was not for you. <laughs> not for me. Uh, and so Jessica Jones is, a, is sort of a somewhat esoteric Marvel character who appeared in November of 2001 in Brian Michael Bendis and Stephen Gatos. Not Stephen Gatos, someone Gatos. I don't know. Uh, alias number one. Uh, and she is a she played by Kristen Ritter in the show. She is a mildly superpowered girl living in. Hell's Kitchen, like they all Wildly. seem to do. Yeah, I mean, she's, she has super she, strength and can. She's fly. pretty Why? strong. It's... She can ki- jump really high. Super, and... Superman circa 1932 flying. Yeah, she's she's not um, she's not Superman, uh, and she. I would I would rather be her than than Daredevil. I'll say that much, um, and not least of all because he's blind. Yeah, that's ableist of you. I'm gonna put this on my Tumblr immediately. Excuse me. <laughs> anyway, Piece of shit. Uh, she the, the mode of the show is very much pitched somewhere between Daredevil and Veronica Mars, with a, a healthy dose of Buffy for good measure. She's a private detective. Um, she is wisecracking. She is more importantly than anything else uh, in as far as the context of this show, if not her as a woman, uh, is traumatized by a violation that in broad strokes uh, and then sometimes in very particular details is analogous to rape. Um, not that the show doesn't touch upon rape itself, but uh, it's overarching metaphor in the relationship between her and the villain character, whose name is Kilgrave, as played by David Tennant, uh, who can make people do whatever he wants just by saying it. Uh, and you can imagine with that premise alone. Actually, uh, one very quick question about it. Yeah. Is it when he speaks it through the air that he can control? They, yeah, they, 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 address, this, they address yeah. this explicitly yes. in episode you have yet to see. So I will not spoil that, but uh, oh, the, the effect okay. yes, the effect is, uh, I guess so. I don't know. People are very I'm pretty far it. into the show, and I've seen things that allude to the fact that it transports through air. Pro- proximity is important. Let's just yeah. say proximity okay. is important. Okay. Yes. I couldn't possibly care less about the housing. <laughs> I know you don't care, but I Which is a problem because, like, three episodes towards the end of the show are very into the hows and whys, and I'm like, whatever. Uh, And nor do I care really about how Jessica Jones got her powers, but they do reveal that as well. Um, It's also, like, the first thing you read on her Wikipedia page, so I knew that going in. Or her groove, Uh, as they say. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, But 
I I thought that this was uh, the best thing that Marvel has ever done for the screen, um, and that's a very very low bar. But I do think that uh, this clears it quite well, in part because it is very uh, – it's told in a totally human register. It's not about people saving the world. Um, I know that Daredevil wasn't either, but it's in stark contrast to the Marvel movies where they're saving more than the world. I mean they're saving galaxies and whatnot. Um, But it's also – it really leans into its metaphor. It doesn't shy away from the fact that it's a story about – Agency and violation and and trauma and what it is that makes someone, in particular a woman, a woman and, and how her identity, how rape is a crime of uh, power and violence rather than a crime of sex. I think the show very explicitly tackles that subject. Um, and it translates these things into a really gripping drama. It As a result of them, it has far and away, I mean, like, you know, beyond it's unquantifiable the extent to which David Tennant's Kilgrave is uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe's best villain um, for the pathos that he brings to it, for the focus that uh, it, it's very unnerving, I would imagine. Um, and I say that as a man, I'm sure women who have uh, their own experiences to transpose over the story uh, can probably find another layer to be unsettled by his character. Um, I think that the the genre element really works strongly. Jessica Jones can be a little bit grating as a character. Uh, her shtick, her sort of like, you know, Veronica Mars Buffy shtick can get in the way a little bit and be a little bit uh, repetitive. But by and large, I think it works for the character. The characters around her um, are all very well-dimensionalized. Her best friend, Trish, uh, and the everyone who this Kilgrave character crosses paths with um, – who's wrapped into the overall story, is given a lot to do. Luke Cage, who's going to be the star of Netflix's next series, I understand, uh, is introduced and used in this show in a very compelling way, um, particularly in the first few episodes and then the last two. Um, And I I just thought that this was such a smart way of of doing these. And, And also, it can't really be overlooked, Functioning as a corrective for so many years of horrible, uh, you know, misogynistic and, and very myopic depictions of women in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, I'm not going to say that now the field is leveled and we can all move forward as if nothing has ever happened. But I think Melissa Rosenberg, the showrunner, uh, to the best of her ability, which is, is considerable, has taken this opportunity and Marvel has given her the leash to do so. To uh, to really make you know almost misandrist, but like very uh, very it's speaking directly to women. Um, women are front and center. They are never. It's all about being objectified and, and the resistance to that. Uh, it really feels like an answer to a lot of the representation of women in the previous Marvel movies, oh, and that doesn't. That's quite, not what necessarily make it good. It's quite blunt by the the middle section. It like, does. It kind of slumps in that respect in an odd way. When I mean, subtlety it. is not. I, I don't watch something like this for subtlety. I think I'm not that talking the, about subtlety. I'm talking see, about repetition. I'm talking about kind exactly. of in metaphor. I've been trying. To, I've been trying to think about what it is. How I would fix this because it has so okay because the story here right is the reason I'm here tonight is because everyone is blown away that I didn't absolutely love this series. Wait, do you hate women? I hate I hate women and I don't many reasons. I don't care about stories about (laughs) sexual assault and a lot of things. No, um, yeah, I do hate women and uh, (laughs) so so Buffy and Veronica Mars are two of my favorite shows of all times. The Alias comic is one of I. 
I read it uh, only about I don't know five months ago. I loved it, blown away, absolutely loved it. Uh, this was a Katie will tell you as as my editor. I was very much looking forward to the show, and you know that that might be why. Maybe I was my my expectations were too high. What did you love Maybe about my, the comic? Maybe my affection for the source material was too high. I lo- I mean, I love the- Jessica Jones. I- like, a lot of the stuff that David is saying. Like, the fact that she is not a quote-unquote likable character, but an engrossing character. The fact that this uh, concept of sexual assault is used as a metaphor in a comic book is very interesting and and uh, different and-, and such a departure from the male fantasy and-, and that you see in comic book. But I think the problem for me is... With, I wish this series had been like six episodes. Mm-hmm. I think thirteen was not I way too much. Um, I think Kristen Ritter is not does not quite nail what I want to see in Jessica Jones because no, I mean I don't think Jessica Jones should be likable. I'm not interested in having a conversation about whether or not she's likable, but I just I think she should be a little. I should have a little bit more access to her than I do, even though she has her walls up to all the people around her. I just, I feel like I need a little bit more access to her. Um, and something, and, and I think uh, a big storytelling mistake they made um, that Buffy always got right, <laughs> which is that you don't introduce an all-powerful big bad right at the beginning of the season. I love David oh. Tennant. He's great in this. But I think uh, we could have gotten to know this world a little bit with Kilgrave more obliquely in the background and then it bring him out. See, I, it is I interesting just, they show their cards really early and that she is, you know, she's a private eye. But we don't really see her going on her detective work very often. Yeah. Like what I she's mean, all d- about before Kilgrave yeah. comes back. Now, I mean, and this is the, the story does. they want to tell. Yeah. This, is, yeah. this is her story. And if this was the only season... That would make a lot of sense to me too. Uh, that this we're that we're just going to get this flash in the pan moment. This is the only thing that she really needs. But to if take it care were of. like, but if it were six episodes, yes. But if you have thirteen episodes, I feel like you have time to establish these characters, these dynamics before, and even maybe. I mean, this is now we're in the realm of fan fiction, but maybe yeah. even have like him tinkering with her life and her not knowing it's him. Even if the audience knows it's him. The immediacy of Kilgrave's entrance into the show is why I think the first, like, four or five episodes are really, like, they they ignite, right? I mean, the, especially the pilot and the second episode, this kind of one-two punch of seeing what this guy can do. I mean, it's really terrifying. It's It's been a long time since I've watched something where I've had this kind of stroke of terror run through my body the way that he... Tenet- Tenet oh. is great. Uh, well, I, he, I don't think he even appears maybe in the first two episodes. Only it's in the just, It's just what he's done to women and how it kind of – the PTSD that, that Jessica mm-hmm. suffers throughout this series. I mean it's I, – I can't believe that people binge watch this show. I've had a really uh, tough time doing <laughs> that. Up until what Joanna was saying about the, uh, the pacing – um, I agree with everything that she said. I do think that uh, Kristen Ritter does go a little bit too far in. Oh, I really uh, like her. No, but I mean, I, think, I, I, think the, I like I think her the pacing and the, a lot, but the script issues I, there. I mean, I think that like she, uh, there is a uh, heart isn't the right word, but there is something inaccessible about the character yeah. um, that that does I think make you feel the duration of the season in a way that if there was more, I don't know, but I do want to say, I think she she accesses it a little bit better towards the end. I think you see the people that become important to her 
And that's, I think it's just reverse. I feel like I should have seen that first and then got her. I get so much of that when she's sharing screen time with Luke Cage and like these bars. I love, I love Mike Coulter as Luke Cage. I think he's so good. And I love the, I forget her name, the one playing Trish, uh, Patty. I love her. Um, I love a lot about the series. I really, I think Carrie Ann Moss is terrible. No, she's great. I like her. And the Hogarth stuff is. But I do want to say that I think that the uh, decision to introduce Kilgrave in the pilot is, is, one of my favorite things about the series, um, or at least the season, because I think that in order to feel the the extent to which this character rules Jessica's psyche and has become this unshakable thing, I think to have a few episodes where she was like, la-di-da, I'm just focusing on these other things would really diminish the, no, but- the okay. trauma that of, of her experience with him. And I don't mean to be an obnoxious book reader, which is often my role when we talk about this stuff, but uh, what Alias does so well, the comic book, is she's not la-di-da. She is messed up and deeply damaged and and drinks too much and has a bad attitude and all this sort of stuff. You can see her suffering from trauma without having Kilgrave in the episode. And then when you meet him, then you're like, oh, yeah, no wonder that she's so messed up the way she is. you know. What I mean, I can't speak to the, the book. I can just say that I enjoyed the, well, I, I don't disagree with the pacing issues and I, I'm, I'm not sure this is the solution for them. I felt that by the time we get to uh, something that happens at the end of episode seven, um, I really appreciated how much time had been devoted to this relationship and how central it was to the character. Um, and I liked that, they planted that seed of, of menace right from the start. And I really like the way the pilot handles her uh, realizing that he is pulling the strings, even if it's only over the course of one case. Um, I, I really, I really did not mind that. Uh, and I do think that the show stumbles a little bit for me. And this is just because of me as a, uh, how I appreciate or don't appreciate a lot of these Marvel interconnected stories it starts to suffer when they reach beyond this relationship and start introducing, they start talking about like the chemicals involved in her accident, the people who are responsible for them. Uh, and they're clearly laying track to some other branch of the MCU. And I'm just like, like, I just want this story. <laughs> these you finally have, you finally have a good lead character and you finally have a good villain. Like just, like I could have at what happens after episode seven, I could have seen that spread out over four episodes, but they plow through it in one. And I think it's just yeah. such rich material Wait, that which episode is episode is episode seven? Episode seven is the one that ends with spoiler. You know, like I don't want to say what it oh. is. It's the one that ends They with, go they go to a place. They, they go, go to they a, go place. a place. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. any of this. I have no idea what you mean. I, I agree. I think that episode eight which is the one after episode seven is the strongest actually, I think of the season. Yeah. But like, I think like that they could have, they could have really stretched it out and like, let us really sink into it um, rather than rush through it. Although uh, I kind of feel feel the opposite. Now I'm not, I'm seven episodes in to the show, so I haven't finished and like you guys have, but you know, I'm totally on board with, Kristen Ritter, uh, her performance, just that energy that she brings when she's running around New York City. I also like, you know, this. the show looks a little low budge, um, and it's very much all filmed on different streets around New York, which I can really appreciate. Um, and and But I do think it's overextended in some way. I want to see the movie version of Jessica Jones, yeah. because the I pilot mean, and the first two episodes, are, they're so strong, um, and this force is so maniacal, and 
I don't know, in, impossible to defeat in some ways. Um, so that's that's why also, I think that's why I think thirteen episodes is insane for this. And you know, someone was pointing out to me, well, you know, superheroes in the Marvel universe go up against unbeatable villains all the time. And I'm like, well, yeah, in a movie format on TV, the you know Daredevil's villain. I mean, I will I will take issue, David, with you saying that David Tennant is the best Marvel villain because I think um, Kingpin on uh, Daredevil yeah. was far and away. Wait, why? The best Marvel villain. Uh, the, as he said, as David said, the pathos of that of that character is just. Hmm. I mean that that performance really really got to me uh, from Vincent D'Onofrio. So uh, that's for me. But he's not an unstoppable but, villain. But he's a Kilgrave he's a guy. isn't unstoppable. I mean Kilgrave is very stoppable and she you is have to put a truck on him or I mean a bus on him no, or a syringe at him. You know? No, she she realizes that he's pretty easily stoppable. The question that arises early towards the series like early in the series is that she can't kill him even like well she she can kill him but she refuses to for certain reasons. Like the power to actually end his life is hers, but she can't bring herself to do that because of a number of complications. But then, uh, like a series of slapstick events, keep she keeps having him, and then he keeps getting released yes, by just it, it's a it's one, it's one slapstick event too many. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, there's like at a certain point, she's got him trapped in like a crazy elaborate setup where you're like, all right, and then like, someone comes and fucks it up, and you're like, uh, okay, like, um, yeah. But uh, I, I do think that it was very interesting to me that she could kill him, but. Um, and it's really not, only she could, but that it wasn't really within her power. And, and the thing that I will, I mean, I'm loath to ever agree with David on anything, but the thing yeah. I will agree on is that the, the Simpson plotline Simpson is this cop character that I think is only there to set up. I mean, part of it ties into the whole like male masculine power dynamic and all of that. But I think a lot of it is there to set up some mysterious future, Marvel storyline that we will get to. And that's all very annoying. Wait, really? Like a second season of the show villain type thing or something. Okay. An organization of some sort. I do sort. wonder what the hell that's all about because Yeah. Well, I would love to see in the show is baffling every time. It's so up. baffling, like, right? Where, yeah. where did you come from? Why it, are you still here? It doesn't make sense. It only it made sense to me when he was just Trish's fuck buddy. And yeah. then when his role evolves, I'm like, whoa, what's happening here? And then it gets yeah. really sort of confusing. And anyway, I, I know from what I, I'm told that they have pretty much exhausted the material in the book and, and Joanna can confirm or deny. So I'm curious to see where they would go in a second season for sure. The first book, there's another, there's the second alias. Uh-oh. And there's, yeah, and they're in, but Kilgrave, I mean, Kilgrave is the big villain of Jessica Jones ever. So I. So it was he in the second book? Uh, I don't think so. I haven't read the second book. I know what happens loosely. Uh, a lot of personal stuff happens. Well, that's good. That's why <laughs> I like the show. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of how I want to wrap this up, talking about really the personal stuff and especially the, the, the strong female identity in the show. Well, I mean, just... I think this show is obviously going out of its way to not just be a female superhero in her own show, making this about... Uh, you know, the female experience and the problems that plague 
uh, probably, you know, a, a community of comic book readers, the female comic book readers. And I'm curious, too, about what you think, you know, they, as we mentioned in the beginning, they really hammer home the metaphor of, of Kilgrave. They come out and they just say, you know, they drop rape right there in the middle of the series. They're like, this is rape. Um, and that's a really, like, that's a hard thing to hear. And it almost goes over a line at some point, dramatically for me. I was surprised that they just came out and said that because I kind of liked that we just felt it deep in our guts the whole time. And then when they say I know. It, it's, kind of, it's, it's an interesting move and I'm curious what you think about it. But then I'm also curious about, like, Carrie Ann Moss's character. You know, not only is she this kind of hard-hitting lawyer, this morally ambiguous character alongside, you know, our hero, but she's also in a lesbian relationship and going through a divorce. And it's, it's very complex stuff that's happening on the sidelines there that keeps kind of leaking into Jessica's story um, and it's all female centric I'm curious what how you how you think that refracts whatever they're going for in the in the main vision of the show or if that's just adding to the tapestry of female experience and that's really the goal there I don't know well no I think it's interesting what they did I, I think it could have been interesting what they did with Carrie Ann Moss's character he has her name her character's name is Jerry and basically she's a macho stereotype right she's a power playing lawyer who is boning her secretary and, you know, divorcing her long-suffering wife. Uh, and, and her secretary is a woman. Yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, so it's three women in this. But I, I don't know. That plot really just didn't work for me at all. But I do appreciate, like, I mean, it sounds so condescending, but of course I appreciate a show that puts so much emphasis on women that has, you know, different sexualities that has a biracial relationship at the center of it you know like all of this diversity stuff is stuff that I always want to see more and more all the representation is stuff that I want to see but I also just want to see it in a really good show and when you start the show off with um basically the exact same way that Veronica Mars starts off, you're setting the bar really high for you to clear. If you start with your female protagonist in a car with the camera, taking photos of a cheating couple with a voiceover with an actress who is in Veronica Mars, it's just like you set me up to yeah, but the show. That's on one the scene. The show eclipses that pretty quickly. I don't, I'm not so sure I agree with that. Do you watch Veronica Mars, David? I've seen every episode of Veronica Mars. I do not watch it currently because it was canceled. Don't constantly watch ago. it on Netflix. Come Wait, on. I want to. Or Amazon. I know, sorry. Yeah. I know you haven't watched, but do you have any thoughts or? Uh, I mean, input? you saying that you appreciate what the things that the show is doing reminds me of the conversation we had last week about uh, films by female directors and whether yes. or not we should support them. And it sounds like you're kind of struggling in the same way I did with that, being like, "This is good for the team." But it's yeah. not necessarily good, which is what makes it hard. And it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, especially for you, having loved the comics so much, like I see what a struggle this is to like support this in theory, but just want it to be better. I feel that way about a lot of things sometimes. And I think it's worth kind of standing up there, especially since it's probably going to have a second season, like be that voice being like, here's how it can be better. Like you don't have to settle for something well, that I is think good it's pretty, it is I pretty think good. it's pretty it's good. Pretty good. Well, it's pretty good. I, I think it's pretty good. I think it's fine, or it might even be good. Like I, I like the back, the back five or back six better than I like the first seven. It's fine. It might be even good, but it's not the great, you know, second coming of Buffy Veronica Mars that I was hoping it would be. And that might be on me for having too high expectations. Well, but- I think the trick is just to compare it to other Marvel shit. <laughs> 
You're the worst. <laughs> Compare it to Thor 2. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Um, but no, I, I had those same thoughts with you. Uh, like, I remember you guys talking about, like, Suffragette and other things and, and not wanting... I don't want to trash talk this show, first of all, because I don't think it's terrible, so it's not worth, you know you know uh, kicking it but i also yeah i just i I'm, i want to support the team go team <laughs> i uh, i'll watch well, i don't know if i'll watch this eventually After you will don't lie to yourself over, maybe. you right. won't you won't guys i got so many screeners to watch what am i gonna do <laughs> oh boohoo That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back later this week talking about Creed. Perfect for your Thanksgiving uh, Rocky marathons. I guess that's what people do on Thanksgiving, maybe? Now that TNT doesn't do the Bond-thon anymore. Anyway. Sci-fi. Bond is going to be on sci-fi this Thanksgiving. What? That doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry, it's true. Uh, T- tenderize your meat. Uh, TV marathons over Thanksgiving are just like, why America? Wow, okay, that's next, that's next week's what? topic. Love them, love them. Oh, love them, okay. Oh, yeah. okay. oh why America exists, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, your no, tone is... for loving and hating thing is exactly <laughs> Ugh. Oh, you gotta TV to marathons, man. they're the reason America is great. <laughs> All right, well, Carol. they're great. Use that as a soundboard for your Thanksgiving this, uh, this year. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. Uh, Joanna, as our guest, you start. Oh, I'm Joanna Robinson. You can find me most days on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at JoeRothis. You can hear me talking about comic books with Dave over on the Thought Bubble. And here, this week. Yeah. Joanna, was your uh, your interview with David Tennant, was that on the Vanity Fair's Hollywood blog? Um, my interview with David Tennant was on VanityFair.com. You don't have blogs anymore. Come on, David. Get in this decade. Uh, I thought I was using the proper rhetoric. I was... Uh, Chan- channel? I think we're a channel, right? A vertical. A vertical. There you go. Yeah. Empire. I'm Matt Patches, and I am the entertainment editor of Thrillist.com, and I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches, and I really need to tell people to follow at Thrillist, which is the Thrillist Entertainment account. I follow it. I follow it, too. It's a good time. And um, we have a website, fightingandworm.com. You can find all our episodes. You can share, even if you're in the UK, leaving black hole reviews into that abyss. Uh, <laughs> now can, we know how to find them. Yeah, you can go on our website, and we'll definitely see them. So, uh, fightingandtheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the staff writer at Rolling Stone. You can find my interview with Jessica Jones showrunner Melissa Rosenberg on rollingstone.com. Uh, you can find all now of us together. You're bought. you're bought by the system. Mm-hmm. No wonder you are. Hey, I volunteered to do it. Uh, you can find all of us on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. Even Joanna Robinson. If you say something about Joanna Robinson, we will make sure that she sees it. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can also find me at VanityFair.com slash Hollywood uh, editing things by Joanna and other people. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich. You can find me on another podcast called Little Gold Men. It's about the Oscar season. Things are heating up. It's getting pretty good. And uh, on Twitter, you can find all of us at F-I-T-W-R, where you can answer this week's lightning round question. What was it? It's in honor of Creed, which Sylvester Stallone movie should be rebooted next? Yeah. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you uh, sometime around your Thanksgiving holiday. Mm -hmm.